Welcome to Transform with Dr. Maggie Yu, the show about how to become a pilot and not a passenger in your health and in your life. Hey, everyone. We're here today with Dr. Paul Thomas, MD, and we're here to talk about the role of vaccines, infections as trigger in autoimmune, but also about his book, The Vaccine Family Plan, and what's going on with that right now. So this is a big topic today. I'm Dr. Maggie Yu. I'm, a, I'm Maggie Yu, MD, and I'm an integrative physician. And today, I love to bring people that have really transformed their own lives and have really transformed the lives of others. And Dr. Paul has done so much to actually change the face of health for family and children, and also the face around vaccination and a reasonable medical-based approach to that as an alternative. So Dr. Paul, welcome. Well, thank you, Maggie. By the way, the book is The Vaccine-Friendly Plan, and you're going to want to get this book because CNN has called for this book to be banned. It's insane. This is not an anti-vax book. I am not an anti-vax doctor. I am a board-certified pediatrician, so it is odd and my, amongst my peers that I would say anything at all against any vaccine because you will hear in the news and from other doctors and legislators that vaccines are safe and effective, period, end of story. Well, anybody with a shred of common sense knows that can't be possible. We've paid out over $4 billion to vaccine-injured children, so they're clearly not safe for everyone. Anyway, I'm happy to be on your show, and uh, we have a lot of important information to share. Now, without that being said, what I want to do is I want to ask you, Paul, what, what got you here? <laughs> we got us here. <laughs> So, uh, you know, none of us are born understanding that vaccines are safe or that they're not safe. We just simply are born, right? And we are born wonderfully made with an incredible immune system. If you are breastfed, it enhances your immune system even more. If you're vaginally born, that's wonderful for, you know, kind of going through the birth canal, just seeds your gut with the proper flora, what we call your biome, microbiome. These are all natural processes that we all have gone through, and we have wonderful immune systems. Then comes this interesting thing that modern science has come up with called vaccination, and that will be part of what we're talking about. And we're also going to talk about how vaccination can really alter your immune system in a way that triggers it towards, kind of pushes you towards allergies and autoimmunity. And I mean, there are hundreds, if not thousands of articles that speak to this. So we know this is true. And then that sets you up for a host of chronic health problems. But how did I get here as a pediatrician? So I grew up in Africa. I had measles, mumps, rubella, chickenpox, every childhood disease. We now know that having these diseases actually helps your immune system. It's sort of like, think of it as training. And people who've had these diseases are less likely to have certain cancers. There are lots of reasons that this can be a good thing to have various infections. But I went to medical school at medical school, did my pediatric residency in California, and we heard and were taught and trained to understand, and I think the whole country and much of the world was trained in the same way, that vaccines are wonderful. Look what they've done. We've eradicated smallpox and polio, and those two are always sort of thrown out there as amazing examples of how wonderful vaccines are. 
And the latest thing is the measles. It's always used at how amazing the vaccines are for measles. Now I will tell you that the vaccines actually do work quite well for measles. We have a local outbreak right now as we're recording here in the Portland, Vancouver area. Southwest Washington and the metro Portland area has had the biggest outbreak we've had in the last 30 years. So this started, the first cases were reported January 3rd. There were, I think, three cases or something like that. And so I'm watching with interest. These cases are in southwest Washington. And then it jumped to 14. And then a month or so later, we were up to 49 cases in Vancouver, one in the Portland area, and then there were four in the Portland area. So I'm keeping my patients appraised of this situation. I've given almost 200 MMR vaccines in the month of February alone because I have a large population whose parents have chosen not to vaccinate for a number of reasons, often very good reasons. But in the case of a possible outbreak, you may want to respond differently, right? That makes sense. So I had a patient in my office, just to address this measles thing, and then I'll get back to the question you asked me. I had a patient in my office a couple weeks ago who had been at the Moda Center on the day that the exposure was listed as this is a risk exposure. And this child had high fever, cough, congestion, and then a rash. I mean, it clearly could have been a case of measles. My doctor in my office called the health department and said, we'd like to send you a sample to confirm whether or not we have an active case of measles. They talked to the family and they told my doctor, there has not been a single case of community acquired measles this entire outbreak. We don't need your sample. I was like, you've got to be kidding. Not a single case acquired in the community. What do you mean? So what they were referring to is the fact that the measles was brought in from overseas. It hit a church or a couple churches in Vancouver, Washington, where there were a large population of unvaccinated folks. And then everybody else that got measles was a household contact of that initial outbreak. Nobody got it at the airport, at Ikea, at the various health centers where these people had been. So what we had was this outbreak being used across the country as the reason we need to vaccinate more, when in fact, Southwest Washington and Portland, Oregon area, we have a 95% vaccine rate for measles, for MMR. There is no emergency. The health department folks are saying, well, it is so contagious that nine out of 10 people exposed will get measles. And then in real life, I'm being told by the same health department that there hasn't been a single case. Tens of thousands of people were exposed between the Moda Center, the airport, Ikea, and all these various places. Not a single person got the measles. Why is that? Well, we have good community immunity or herd immunity, whichever term you want to use. In this particular case, that vaccine is very effective. There's other problems, and we certainly will get into that with not only the MMR, but the whole idea of so many vaccines so soon. But I just wanted to address that issue. We're, we're having legislators use a fake crisis about measles to force vaccines and vaccine mandates. So we're here in Oregon. I was just down in Salem yesterday testifying at a rally. The, the Thursday before, I was testifying to the committee that's trying to decide whether or not we're going to remove all philosophical and religious exemptions in Oregon. Bills like this are rolling out across the country. Every legislative cycle, we see this again, state after state after state. Why? Why is this that the legislators are trying to force you to give every single vaccine according to the CDC schedule or your kid can't go to school when we don't have a crisis at all? It has to be conflicts of interest. So you have to look for the conflicts of interest and it's money, folks. Follow the money. Unfortunately, pharma makes billions and billions of dollars on vaccines 
and they're protecting their profit stream. And when you can have vaccines mandated on top of the fact that there's no liability for vaccines, the manufacturers, the doctors who give them, in Oregon, they're making it so that pharmacists can give vaccines now. They want dentists. There's a new law that dentists will be able to give vaccines. Pretty soon, almost anybody who can put a needle in your arm will have the right and the ability to give a vaccine, and yet there's zero liability. So we have to wake up as consumers and realize, do we want a product injected to us for which there's no liability, there's no recourse if you're damaged, and we know that vaccines are causing a huge, huge crisis in the area of chronic health problems. So what I hear, Paul, is, is that, you know, I think it's important that what we're adding to this conversation is, is that I think on both sides of the fence when you're dealing with vaccines, that there's a lot of fear-mongering and use of, you know, on both sides, there's a lot of extreme cases, small, yeah. isolated, being brought to this conversation. Yeah. And I love the fact that we're both MDs here. And yeah. I love the fact that you've written a book and it's been three years. <laughs> Tens of thousands of copies have been sold. Yes. And this is a very, you're not against vaccinations per se. You're, no. What you are is you're acknowledging the effectiveness of certain vaccines and what they are. And you're just recommending a different timing. Correct how to do vaccines, which is very different. To me, we're very, we're actually the voice of reason. You're at the voice of reason here in a conversation that's very polarized from one end to the, on both sides is extremely polarized. You're like the voice of reason here. Well, you bring up a good point, Maggie. I mean, it's devastating if you've lost a child to an infectious disease right? So if you're the parent of a child who dies of whooping cough, for example, we have an average of five deaths per year in the United States from whooping cough. They're mostly infants. And this is out of, we have a birth rate of about 4 million births per year. So your chance of dying from whooping cough in the United States is about one in a million. But if you're that one, it's devastating, right? And and there's no way you're going to convince that parent that they shouldn't have done the pertussis vaccine, even though its effectiveness is horrible. So the organism has shifted. The vaccine was made against protactin protein. That is not, most of the pertussis out there is protactin negative. So I'm not sure the vaccine's even working. Probably 80% of the time it fails. That's why we're having pertussis outbreaks. There's a recent outbreak in California school, 30 cases of pertussis, all 30 cases were fully immunized. So, you know, mandating that vaccine is not providing very good protection. It's almost worthless at this point. Paul, I think that what you're saying is, is I, I love what you're saying. And it's like, we have your voice of reason here. And as MDs, I mean, I think people don't realize, like, I'm hearing your journey of how you got here. And for me, like my journey is, is that, you know, I have an autoimmune disease. I have multiple autoimmune targets. I have, I deal with, I have an entire program for people with autoimmune disease to turn it around. One of these questions that's really key that's missing is what we're talking about right now, which is vaccination and vaccination reaction histories or infectious disease history. My own son at the age of one, when he got the vaccines at the age of one, went from a completely healthy, normal baby into a kid who was detached, pushing me away, crying and screaming all the time. And just lost eye contact, everything. And he was later at age four or five diagnosed with having an spectrum in one of the autism spectrum disorders. Yeah, I'm so sorry. Maggie, I hear that story every week in my office. And so that's the other side of this. So you have those rare damages from diseases, and then you have a million kids in the U.S. today. You have 900 
let's see, 90,000 new cases of autism every year in this country. And the story is almost always the same. They were doing fine. And then after one, sometime between one and two, they regress into some spectrum or complete full-blown severe autism. And so how do you convince those parents that they should now vaccinate the rest of their kids when they just witness? Sometimes it happens immediately after a vaccine and sometimes it takes time and you're not absolutely sure, right? I mean, you gave all these vaccines and then your kid regressed. There seems to be a connection, but you can't prove it, right? So what we really need is data. And in fact, I've been challenged as a pediatrician who wrote a book called The Vaccine-Friendly Plan that has a slower schedule. I've been challenged by the authorities saying, how can you say that what you're recommending is safer than the CDC? Or give us the data, show us the studies. So I went to the literature and I'm trying to find studies showing the safety of the CDC schedule in its entirety. And you know what? They don't exist because the only way you can test a schedule in its entirety is to put that side by side with a group of non-vaccinated kids. So what I did in my practice, I've been open for 10 and a half years. I commissioned a quality assurance project just this past month. And I'm going to share the data with you. It is absolutely mind blowing. Now, I am not saying that vaccines cause autism. I'm just showing you the data. So look at the data for yourself. I had Dr. Michael Graven. He's an MD, neonatologist, pediatrician, informatics expert who has set up information systems, health systems in 45 countries around the world. This guy is brilliant. He spent a week in my office deep diving into the data. I said, find how many patients were born into my practice so we can have a clean sample of patients who just came in and followed recommendations. You know, we do informed consent with vaccines like you should with any procedure, and then it should be the parent's choice. So that's how we operate. We give people the risks, the benefits, the alternatives, the options, and parents decide. Here's what we found. There were 3,345 patients born into my practice in the last 10 years. 715 of them, the parents chose not to vaccinate. The autism rate for that group was one, one out of 715. That proves that you can get autism even if you weren't vaccinated, right? You, we had a case. I have a couple in my practice. Now, what happened to the remainder 2,640 patients? Most of them followed the vaccine-friendly plan or some slower version than that. We had six cases of autism or autism spectrum for a rate of one in 440. Now, the rate for everyone else out there in Oregon and in the country is one in 45, according to the latest Academy of Pediatrics data. So you can change the rate of autism by 1,000%, it seems, according to my data, for Oregon, where we have 40,000 births per year, using the vaccine-friendly plan would seem to would lower the rate of autism from 9,000 to 90. I mean, it's just incredible. I'm sorry, 900 to 90. We can spare almost 900 cases of autism every year in Oregon. Or if you look at the country as a whole, 4 million births, this sort of transformation of just doing a more common sense approach to vaccines, instead of having 90,000, we would have 9,000 cases of autism. So I want to be really clear here. We're MDs, you're an MD that is not an anti-vacciner. No, not at all. You are here to promote a reasonable data-driven 
approach to vaccination based on the vaccine friendly plan. You're not, right. and you're not telling people not to vaccinate. You're not even telling them that there's necessarily even causation. You're no, just saying, not at all. Is there, a, is there a more reasonable approach to this? That's it. Yes. So let me give your, your listeners a simple, easy example of one step you can take. Well, I'm going to give you two. These are really the biggest two things. I talk no, in threes, Paul. Actually, <laughs> you can be super generous and go in threes. It's going to be three. I just realized I can't leave off. I know. Seven. You got to deliver, man. All right. So I'm going to deliver to you the three most important aspects of the vaccine-friendly plan and see if you can understand the rationale and why this makes so much sense. So first of all, in pregnancy, we know that if you get sick, whether you get measles, rubella, there's herpes viruses that you can get that really will affect the development of that baby's brain. So you can get an infection, it overstimulates the immune system, and that's not a good thing when you're pregnant. We know that. So why on this earth would we want to inject and intentionally overstimulate the immune system during pregnancy? There are no studies comparing the unvaccinated pregnant woman and the long-term health outcomes of her baby to those who are now being injected with flu shots and Tdaps. So the tetanus, diphtheria, pertussis vaccine, and the flu shot. You can look at the package inserts and it says, not tested in pregnancy. When I gave this talk to the Physicians for Informed Consent inaugural address a couple years ago, I went to the CDC website and I pulled all 12 articles that they listed as the rationale for doing these vaccines during pregnancy. And you know what? Not a single one of them looked at chronic health outcomes. They were looking at things like, did it change the birth weight? Yeah. Who cares? We want healthy developing brains. That's called tobacco science. Tobacco science example is, you group smoke one pack a day, this other group smoke two packs a day, and then a month from now or a year from now, we're going to see who got lung cancer. Oh, nobody got lung cancer. It takes a lot longer than a month or a year. Therefore, smoking is safe. All right. That's tobacco science. And that's what they were doing for these vaccine studies. I'll have you know, you can go to the CDC website today and they've all been pulled. So now they just make the recommendation with no literature backing it up because it's just tobacco science backing up their recommendations. One, you two, three. One, two, three. That was one, huh? That what was one. Three? So one was don't give vaccines while you're pregnant. You want when I do my prenatal visits, I tell my patients, look, you need a balanced immune system. If you vaccinate, you're tipping it towards autoimmunity and allergy. So don't do that. Eat yeah. healthy food, avoid toxins, take your vitamin D, get your rest, avoid stress, and fix your biome. But I'm going to go to two. Wait, I want to I say something about one. What I see in my population of people I deal with with autoimmune, for me in my program and the thousands of people we've worked with is this. A huge majority of them have an infectious or vaccination history. And it's not necessarily like a vaccine of causation, but it's more like it would be around the times when they were more vulnerable and they were getting a lot of vaccines. Yeah. Um, it would be after an infection. We know that when you're actually stimulating the immune system, whether it's vaccine or getting an infection, people yeah. with mono, people with Lyme, people yeah. with strep, kids with strep, yeah. you know, we know these are triggering autoimmune attack in the people yeah. I deal with. And nobody, no physician has actually worked with people with autoimmunity and really asked these pieces to be like, oh, it actually was an infectious trigger in you that's changed your autoimmunity. Yeah. So for me, that's also helping people figure a way out. Yes. Because once we realize what those true triggers really are, of which only infection is one of them, 
we can say, hey, that's a tool. If we can deal with your infections, if we can prevent your infections from recurring over and over again, that's going to be a huge key and linchpin to turning around your autoimmunity. And this right. is after the fact. I deal with the downstream after effect, after right. th- these people's immune system have totally gotten off kilter. Right. So this whole point that you're making, number one, was, which is if you don't have to get any, if some vaccines are unnecessary, avoid them or delay them at a different time is really yes. key because downstream 10, 20 years from now, no one's measuring this data of right. what is happening to chronic disease in people and the role right. of those infectious triggers in triggering the autoimmune attack. There isn't any major studies out there around this. Right. It's ridiculous. We need those studies. So you're absolutely right. And people might mishear you or think in an incorrect way when you say we need to avoid infections. And so then my logical thought when I've been trained that vaccines prevent infections, I'm going to think, well, I need to vaccinate more. The interesting finding, this is an aside, I'm not getting to two, but my unvaccinated population is the healthiest population hands down by far in my office. You come into my office, I have a sick waiting room and a well waiting room. My well waiting room is packed, overflowing, and there's nobody sitting in the sick side. Now this winter, we've had a flu season to beat all flu season, so we have had some sick kids through there. But in general, when I look at the total infections, when I've looked at my data in the past, the unvaccinated have fewer infections by far. So I just wanted to clarify that. But I want to go on to two. So now you're going to, you want to have healthy kids. You're raising a new family. You're now going to make sure you don't give any vaccines while you're pregnant. And then you're going to go to the hospital, unfortunately. <laughs> I say, unfortunately, if you could have, oh man, I don't know if I should go here. If you could have a healthy home birth, the chance of a C-section drops from 30% to 5%. So there's something. That means you're going to have a vaginal delivery, which is going to boost your child's natural immunity huge. So if you can safely have a home birth or if you can safely have a vaginal delivery, please do that because it's a huge boost. But that wasn't number two. Number two was for most people in America, you're going to have your baby in a hospital. And I want to tell you how that happens. You walk into the hospital and they have you sign you know, these papers. There's no way you can read it all. So you sign, you're signing in to have your baby. You just gave permission for routine care. And in America, that includes right after the baby's born, three things happen almost immediately within minutes of birth or certainly within the first hour. You get a hepatitis B vaccine, you get a vitamin K shot, and you get eye ointment. I want to talk specifically about the hepatitis B vaccine because that's number two. So in America, less than 1% of mothers having children have hepatitis B. That means 99% or more do not have hepatitis B. Hepatitis B is a sexually transmitted disease, just like HIV. And if your baby's about to have sex, well, I guess you could also share dirty needles in in IV drug use. So if your baby's going to have IV drug use or sex in the next few hours or days or months or years, you should get the hepatitis B vaccine. Otherwise, as long as birth mother does not have hepatitis B, why would you inject 250 micrograms of aluminum that's in that hepatitis B vaccine? Oh, we know why. It's for the convenience of providing this vaccine at a schedule that's convenient for us. Okay, you're right. We were taught that, right? So That's what we were taught as MDs. Yes. So in 2001, we used to give it to teenagers in Oregon. And that was the year they said, no, we're going to now start doing it for teenagers. And it's good because we'll get them while you've got them because it's hard to get teenagers back into the office to get vaccines. That was the biggest rationale for doing it. Ah, uh, you know, you, okay. So a lot of us were grumbling. This didn't make any sense, but we went along with it. Guess what? We now have data on how effective it is at 
providing immunity when you need it. So when do you need immunity for hepatitis B? Late when teens. You're a teenager. Yeah, late teens and early adulthood. Why not get it done? <laughs> yeah. Well, here's what's worse, Maggie. Only 24% in one study of the 15 to 19-year-olds who got the hepatitis B series as infants had any evidence of immunity. So in other words, 76% of these babies who are getting the hepatitis B as infants will not have protection when they need it. Right. So we're poisoning them. Literally, this was two. We're poisoning them with aluminum with that vaccine for a disease they're not at risk for, and we're harming their later ability to fight that infection. So and number two is delay the hep B, man. Yep. <laughs> when Do they actually need it. Yes, give the hep B to your preteen, early teen, that's fine. They can handle the aluminum better when they're bigger. The FDA has a document up that you're not supposed to exceed five micrograms per kilo per day of injected aluminum. It's called parenteral aluminum. And you've got 250 to a newborn. That's like... 10 times, 15 times the max dose per FDA recommendations. So don't do the hep B. That was number two. So you don't vaccinate in pregnancy. You don't do the hep B. How much danger, by the way, by following those two suggestions, are you putting your child in? Virtually none. I mean, you could make a case for the fact that the mom who gets the Tdap is going to pass some of those antibodies to her baby and she's going to reduce the risk of one of those five out of four million deaths from pertussis, but that's just theoretical. We know the vaccine isn't very effective anyway, and is it really going to prevent those illnesses? You can still do the Tdap later. So anyway, I think the risk is close to zero as you can get following those first two recommendations, and the benefits to your baby's immune system are huge. Number three, read the book, The Vaccine-Friendly Plan, so you get the whole outline, but when you get to age one, don't do the MMR that young. Put it off till at least age three. Now, why do I say that? This vaccine, this is the most contentious, most difficult one to deal with because I just started off this show telling you that we have great herd immunity. We don't have measles running through our community. I'm not that afraid of measles, frankly. I had it as a kid. But prior to the introduction of the MMR in 1963, there were about 450 deaths per year. So if we just stop, We'll go back to 450 deaths per year, maybe, or some, something around that number if, eventually, right? It would take a while for the immunity of our population to wane and have a whole bunch of kids grow up without protection. And then eventually in 10, 15, 20 years, we'll start having outbreaks of measles. And I don't think we would ever get to 450 deaths per year. But that would alarm people, right? So we want to maintain, I'm proposing as an MD who cares about community immunity, we want to maintain immunity against measles, and, but we can do that by giving everybody who can safely get the vaccine, and I didn't say everybody, this is an important point. There are people with autoimmune histories, Maggie, you would be one. If you were in my practice, I would tell you that none of your children ongoing should get the MMR, probably shouldn't get any vaccines, because you have such high risk of having vaccine injury. Now, there's lots of families who have no family history of autoimmunity, no family history of severe neurodevelopmental problems, autism or autism spectrum. They can, get, I'm pretty sure, not 100%, but pretty sure they could get the MMR after age three, as long as your three-year-old is developing normally. There's no developmental issues, no family history of autoimmunity, no family history of autism or severe neurological neurodevelopmental problems. Those are the kids that can get the MMR, and that probably represents 90, 95%. So here's the thing. For me, I think this is what you're saying here is gold for the autoimmune population. 
Because, I mean, typically, I mean, and I talk about the role of hormones in triggering autoimmune as well. So for me, my personal experience was after the birth of my first child was when I went to full-blown postpartum depression, lost a lot of my hair, gained a lot of weight. And when I look back, it wasn't until 10 years later that I was actually had to fight to get diagnosed with autoimmune disease. That was the first trigger and the first manifestation of autoimmune attack. Right. But nobody's making that. Nobody understands those links. Right. And I didn't know. So if I didn't know, at, if I was diagnosed at that time, that would have been super helpful because I would have prevented my son from getting these vaccines at age one. Right. And if we were 10 year fast forward and Dr. Paul was my doctor. Right. And <laughs> but at least now we have hindsight, which is like I knew that I had a chance if I knew I had autoimmune disease with my second child. And we are having these conversations now because there are families having more babies. There are families that already have children with, and they have auto, my audience is all autoimmune. So they have young children. Some of them have teenage children and they're thinking about what can we do to not trigger autoimmune in them. This is an extremely high risk population. So it makes the most sense here. Yeah. So vaccine mandates is the problem and they're being rolled out across our country And the problem is, the reason I just can't stand these vaccine mandates is that they are putting the government in the place of making healthcare decisions, and they're removing the ability of an intelligent parent, such as yourself. I mean, here you are, you're an MD, you're a parent who knows more about autoimmunity than probably 99.999% of the population, and you know, you know as you know as you know that if you had another child and you gave them the CDC schedule, you would have problems, probably severe health problems, whether it's autoimmune problems or autism. So you're not going to vaccinate your subsequent children. You know better than your pediatrician. Unfortunately, most pediatricians are not really versed on autoimmunity and certainly not on the connection between vaccines and vaccine ingredients and autoimmunity. Well, Paul, I want the choice of whether I'm going to vaccine. And if I am, I want to just have the knowledge that your plan provides to be able to make rational medical based decisions that makes sense. Cause there's some things I really don't want my children to have. And I may choose to vaccinate my children with all the vaccines, let's say, but having a delayed schedule is going to also really decrease that risk. It's nice to have choice. That's educated choice. And we're not giving that to people. That's my, that's what I'm, we're both saying here. Right. It's absolutely essential. So there's, there's a movement going on, folks, in our country that it should be very disturbing to everyone who becomes aware of this. And here's what I read on a CNN, their business article just recently. They're calling on Amazon to take down the movie Vaxxed. Don't offer it on live stream. Don't sell it. And they included right after that, Dr. Paul Thomas, yeah, that's me, and my book, The Vaccine-Friendly Plan. And they're, they're saying that we need to remove anti-vax information and information that's, I forget the words they use, but basically they're saying if it's wrong, right? So somebody is saying what's right and what's wrong. This is censorship at its absolute worst. And unfortunately, it's a whole agenda that's being pushed and paid for by pharma. And pharma has so much money invested in not just mandating vaccines, but not allowing the truth about the negative downside of vaccines, come on. They can't be both safe and effective when you have $4 billion of vaccine injury. Let me just share, let me just share a little history of how we got here. So 20 years ago, Andrew Wakefield, am I, are you running out of time? <laughs> a little like, bit. 
<laughs> Shorten it up, Dr. Paul. No, okay. I really want them to hear about why your book is banned and what they need to do about it. But I want you to. Oh, well, that's a good point. So finish, so, finish, this, finish this thing. And let's I want to tell them why what we're going to do about this banning issue. Okay. All right. Well, you just go out and get as many copies and send them to everybody you care about. This is not an anti-vaccine book. Far from it. In fact, most anti-vaccine people, websites, they don't like my book because my book gives you a way to vaccinate. I just sent an email to a guy that I've had a lot of interactions with. He's one of the people who has a website that's pretty anti-vaccine. And he lists a whole bunch of other books that weren't even mentioned by CNN as you better rush out and get these books. I'm going, hey, I was mentioned. (laughs) Anyway, real quick how we got here. Andrew Wakefield 20 years ago wrote an article saying there may be a link between MMR and autism. He lost his license for it. He actually did nothing wrong. His senior doctor, Dr. Walker, was exonerated. Needless to say, he went up against the system and he paid the price, ultimately lost his ability to practice medicine. Then I want you to know that the Congress commissioned the CDC to look at the safety of the MMR vaccine specifically. And they did a study and published those results in pediatrics. So one of my journals is pediatrics. 2004, it's published. The MMR has no link with autism. Well, the head guy, William Thompson, is the CDC whistleblower that came forward a decade later and said, oops, I have the data. We changed the study design. There was a link between MMR and autism. Now, fast forward to January 6th of this year, so two months ago, Cheryl Atkinson on full measure, go look it up, January 6th, full measure, she exposes the fact that Andrew Zimmerman, our nation's top pediatric neurologist, autism expert, who testified for the government's case that got over 500 families who had autism, they got those dismissed from the court that would have given them compensation for the damages those families had at the hands of vaccines. They were dismissed because of one testimony when he specifically went to them and said, there are cases where vaccines are triggering autism. So that his whole affidavit is out there. So here you have it. The CDC has known, the government has known, and now they want to silence anybody who's exposing the truth. I think we better fight back, you guys, or you're gonna, all you're going to be allowed to hear is the, how do you say it, cleansed information. We're going we're gonna to package the information we want you to have, and we're not going to let you know the truth. So I mean, let's, let's talk about call to action for everybody, all right? Because people need clear, actionable things they can do. Number one is raising awareness around this. And instead of the polarized conversation, this is a very reasonable MD-led conversation here, and it's an MD-written book. I think it's really important for number one is everybody share this right now to any parent out there, anybody with autoimmune disease, share this right now. Okay, if you can, you know, share it to your Twitter feed because this is going to be on the news coming up in the next couple of weeks. So share it to your Twitter feed, spread this message around so that more and more people can get educated. And that is a reasonable approach to vaccination. And there is a link of vaccine to chronic disease that we already have experienced by personal experience and what we've seen clinically. So share this, number one. Number two is we're going to provide you a link to Dr. Paul's book. And before it gets banned, let's hope it doesn't, is go ahead and order that book right now and share it with other people or share the link of the book to other parents that you know of this data-driven plan. And that's really reasonable, Paul. So number yeah. two, we're going to provide a link for you to actually buy the book or share the message about the book. So share the message, look at the book, share the message about the book, buy the book if you need it. 
I think those are really great call to actions that we can do right now. So that would be key. If we can get 10,000 people to see this video and those 10,000 people can get another 10,000, 20,000 to see this video, this is how real messages get out is by you social sharing this. Yes. We've got to share the information, the real information and not allow them to censor out the truth, which is what they're trying to do. The other call to action is if you're in a state where they're trying to pass any bill that would take away your right to refuse a vaccine, you've got to fight that. You see, it's not just the current CDC schedule. The problem with these bills is a blanket mandate for the future. So any vaccine they want to add later, you'll have to do it or you can't have your child go to school. I mean, the one that is horrific, and Maggie, I'm sure you see this since you work with autoimmunity, is the HPV vaccine. I mean, in my practice, I've seen numerous teenagers have their health absolutely destroyed after getting that vaccine. And in several, I've had two cases where teenage girls were given the vaccine at school without parents' knowledge, without my knowledge. They come in with chronic neurological problems. They get to the point where these were athletes who can no longer barely walk, and we're trying to figure this out. Is it Lyme? What is it? I mean, this is a bizarre presentation of a deteriorating neurological disorder. Come to find out they got the HPV vaccine and the mom's horrified, I'm horrified. And so there's something unique that that vaccine is doing to a fairly significant percentage of people. Now, obviously, some people get the vaccine and they're fine. That doesn't mean the vaccine's safe. It just means they got lucky. But there are too many of us who are at risk for harm with that vaccine and with the whole CDC schedule. But if we allow mandates, then they just keep tacking on more and more and you'll have no choice. So what Dr. Paul is saying in a really simple way is in your state, if there's mandates for vaccines, you definitely want to get involved with your legislator or your senator, right, right and support movements to give parents choice, people choice in vaccines. You got it. All right. So I want to thank you, Dr. Paul, for this great interview and conversation. And I want everybody to share this right away. And for me, if you want to learn more about me and what I'm doing with autoimmune disease in our program, just go to drmaggie.com. I want to thank you, Dr. Paul. That was wonderful. Thank you, Dr. Maggie. You you are the best. DrPaulApproved.com is where you can go and get a link to the book and anything else I'll be doing in the future. It's drpaulapproved.com. Thank you so much for your attention. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Thanks for your support in raising awareness and sharing this. To learn more about our program, visit drmaggieu.com forward slash talk.